you can be seated. I just want to continue. The words of that song are really a prayer for us um, as we seek to hear from the Lord, as we seek to know and see Christ more clearly. And so I just want to pray for us to that end. Father, thank you for this time again to come together and look at your word. It is miraculous, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us in this way and preserved all of your truth for us to know you, for us to see your glory in the face of Christ. So Father, I pray for us this morning that as we come to your word, as we study the words of life, that you would convince us even more, that you would show us the magnificence and the worth of Christ, that we might be to the praise of your glory, your glorious grace that is ours in Christ. So Father, show us today the real Christ, the true Christ, as he came in the flesh, yet remaining divine, as he came to be the sufficient and the only substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf to make us reconciled with you. So Father, show us that Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please take your Bibles then to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and this is the end of the chapter. This is the end of our little series here in John. But read with me in John chapter 4. Please stand. We'll read together. Verses 46 through 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum, where there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You may be seated, and children, you can be dismissed at this time to Children's Church. So as I mentioned, um, we've had the privilege of walking through John 3 and 4 together. Gary, of course, led us through um, an overview of of 1 and 2, but over the past eight weeks, we've covered chapters 3 and 4, and of course, You know, as this is the final sermon in that series, we recognize that there's a lot more of John, right, that we won't be able to get to. Um, But Josh and I have tried to work hard and be careful to communicate the big picture of John as we see clearly what John is trying to communicate through the gospel of John, through the whole book. We wanted to make sure that you saw that bigger picture, even as we looked at this snapshot of John 3 and 4. And I just want to remind us of that. And if we look to the end of John, you'll see in your notes there, 
chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John kind of tells us very clearly what his purpose was for writing this gospel. And it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the reason for this gospel. This is the reason John is writing the book, and Josh and I have tried to point you to that overarching purpose as we've looked at just chapters 3 and 4. We're going to continue on with these themes, and I want to make you aware of three of them from this purpose statement in John chapter 20. Three very important phrases that are going to be significant for our text today. The first one is, these things, these signs that Jesus performed are written. What is the point of the miracles Jesus performed? We recognize, we see that he's a dynamic and powerful character throughout the Gospels. He's unique among men. He's able to heal. He's able to perform wondrous supernatural things. But what is the point of those miracles? may seem simple. Here it says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. However, he rebukes the Galileans in our text today in verse 48 because they're seeking after signs. Nevertheless, John does say that the purpose is that you may believe. And so, therefore, we ask the question, what does belief look like? What is true faith that saves And then the third phrase there is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we're going to look from our text then at that as well. Who is the Christ? What is the object of our faith? Who or what must we believe in to have life? We'll see all three of those things in our text today. So, signs and wonders. Of signs and faith is the title because those are the concerns of this text. What is the meaning and the purpose of the signs? If Jesus is doing these signs, these miracles, but now he's rebuking the Galileans for seeking after the signs and requiring signs for belief. And what is that belief? The nature of that belief and the object of that belief. So looking at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, to this man, this official who comes to him, his son is at the point of death. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And then at the end of this section, verse 54, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So about signs and wonders, what are are the, the nature and the purpose of these miraculous supernatural deeds that Christ did, these mighty works Well, Josh set the table for us last week, because really this could be preached together as one section, verses 43 uh, through 54, 43 through 45, tell us about Jesus moving from uh, Samaria to Galilee, and the Galileans welcome him because they saw the signs, the miracles that he had done in Jerusalem. So what about these signs? Well, Josh showed us from verses 43 through 45 last week that there was some irony in the welcome that the Galileans gave Jesus because it says that Jesus, as a prophet, although he's much more than that, he's coming back to his hometown, his home region, 
because uh, Cana is just north of Nazareth. So this region is basically his home region. And he's going there. Why? Because a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Well, that's paradoxical. That's confusing. It doesn't seem to make any sense. But there's a real purpose for why he's coming to a place where his own people will reject him en masse. Sense is made of the confusion when we see that the nature of the welcome is not what it first appears to be. The reason why the majority of people in Galilee will reject Christ, ultimately, is that they're not interested in Christ for who he is. What they're interested in is his signs and wonders. They're interested in miracles. They're interested in the things that he can do that no other man can do for them, but nothing beyond those temporal, physical things. So they get it wrong. They want to simply see more signs, more miracles. But what is then the significance and the purpose of the miracles Jesus performed? Well, let's go back, way back, in fact, and look at kind of a historical perspective of signs and wonders, supernatural things in Scripture. It was completely normal in the Old Testament for the people of God, actually people in general, Uh, to look for some type of proof, some type of evidence that showed, that verified that a messenger or a message was indeed from God. There was to be some sort of display of power or supernatural deeds, signs and wonders, that would validate a person as an agent, a representative of God or any power they claim to represent. Remember back in Exodus when the Lord is preparing Moses and Aaron to deliver the people out of Pharaoh's hand? He says in Exodus 7, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. They knew and the Lord knew that this is what Pharaoh would expect if they claimed to be messengers from God. He says, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. And they did just that. Of course, Pharaoh's wise men and sorcerers come and they perform a counterfeit miracle. And, uh, and, and we know that the serpent of the Lord from Moses' staff swallows up those other serpents, um, proving his superiority. But at the same time, it's worth noting that there are other powers at work as well who are also performing signs. And Jesus said that this would continue through the power of Satan, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Nevertheless, this proves the point that this was an expectation. This was normal for people to expect there to be something miraculous, something supernatural to prove that a messenger and his message were truly from God. As God was progressively then revealing himself and his word and his plan of redemption to people, supernatural works and miraculous signs were common and expected. They verified the Old Testament prophets and judges and would continue to verify the message of salvation even in the New Testament. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord And then it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness 
through people by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Paul, of course, summarized this Jewish approach, this Jewish expectation for signs, miracles. In 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. Jews as a whole, as a people group, they demand signs. They're looking for signs while Greeks, Gentiles seek wisdom. So then, as we come to our text and we realize what Christ is about, uh, what he's doing in these regions, he's performing miracles, why would the Jews expect anything else? Why would they expect not just someone who claims to be a prophet, but someone who instead claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God? Why would they not expect him to perform miracles and signs to verify his claims? It would be expected. And Jesus certainly would prove his identity and power through signs. It would be strange if he didn't. In fact, it was prophesied that he would in Isaiah 35. When God delivers you, my people Israel, when that happens, the eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus confirmed his fulfillment of the prophecy, sending word to John the Baptist when John the Baptist is sitting in prison. He has a moment of questioning, of of perhaps doubt, and he wants to know for sure, he wants to be assured that as he sits there, that the Messiah truly has come and that he has done his job as his forerunner to make way and prepare the way of the Lord. And so Jesus says, go and tell John, As he sits there in prison, go and tell John what you hear and see the blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. So the signs that Jesus performs, these miracles are expected and they're prophesied. And so it's normal for people to expect these things to take place from this messenger of God. The signs and miracles prove his power. They show his deity. They show us that he is gracious and compassionate. And they show us his glory. Remember back in chapter 2, the first of the signs he performed in Cana, the water into wine. It says, this Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. It revealed his glory. It showed us what Christ was like. And his disciples then, as a result, believed in him. So ultimately, the miracles that Christ performs, they are compassionate. He is, he is a friend of sinners. He is someone who cares for the needs of those around him. But ultimately, his miracles verify his identity and his message. Who is Christ? This is proving who he is. He is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And he is the one who you must believe in. Or perish. However, the miracles themselves were not the end goal. The miracles were not to just attract people to this wonderful display of power, and that was it. They were not the end, but instead a means to an end. Here's your sign. Anyone familiar with with Jeff Foxworthy and his? He's become famous for his uh, his his bit, his comedic bit where he says, here's your sign, you might be a redneck if such and such is true. You might be a redneck if you have a, a whole set of salad bowls and they all say Cool Whip on the side. Okay? 
I don't even know how I've encountered that because I've never gone out of my way to search for Jeff Foxworthy's comedy, but I'm aware of it. And I don't want to distract us from the text. I want to distract us from the significance of this. But I want to capitalize on that definition of what a sign is. A sign is something that indicates something about someone or something else. It shows us something about that person is true. And so here's your sign. These miracles are the sign that Jesus, in fact, is who he claims to be. That he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Therefore, the sign itself is a means to an end, and the end is belief in Christ. As John said, these are written so that you may believe. Now, with this understanding, with this context of of miracles and signs in general throughout Scripture, and now in the life and ministry of Jesus, we can continue on in our text, looking at this second sign that he performs in Cana. So, verses 46 through 48. He came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, which was about 15 miles away to the east on the coast of uh, the Sea of Galilee, from Capernaum comes an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down There's elevation in Cana, come down to the lake, to the coast, to Capernaum, to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, doesn't seem like a bad thing, right? Your son is ill to the point of death, he's dying, and you go to the one who you know can heal him. What does Jesus say? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And there's a, if you catch the tone, there's, there's a derision here. There's a condescending tone. There's a chastisement that's taking place in this statement. There's something wrong with you. And it is ultimately a lack of faith. Now, the you, you can't see this in English, but in the Greek, the you there, both times in that verse, in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's plural. Jesus is speaking to this man, but including the whole group of people, essentially the Galileans, and more broadly, the Jews in general, both in Judea and in Galilee. You people, he's saying, will not believe unless you see miracles. But of course, he includes the man in that group. So it seems that at this point, What we see here is a man who's coming to Jesus and his only desire, his only understanding of who this person is, is that he's someone with supernatural gifts. He has the ability to heal people from their infirmities. And that's all he knows at this point. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with wanting your son to be healed? Why does Jesus give a rebuke instead of just Agreeing, going with him, healing his son. Hadn't the Jews been rightly conditioned, after all, to look for signs? Well, it looks like what Jesus is doing here, especially as we consider the context where he just came from in Samaria, and the response of those people in the great harvest, the successful harvest that happened there. Jesus is telling us something about an overemphasis a a disproportionate desire 
for signs and the miraculous. And so it seems there's something more commendable about faith that doesn't depend on signs, but instead faith that simply believes the words of Jesus. So back to Samaria, remember what happened in verses 41 and 42. Many more of the Samaritans believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, this is certainly intentional. There's a, there's a juxtaposition of the Samaritan people and the Jewish people, and the difference is clear in what they're seeking after and what causes them to have faith in Christ. He holds this, or told the Samaritans plainly that he was the Messiah. Remember he tells that to the woman? I am he. And he speaks clearly and plainly to them, and they believe. But the Jews are only after him for his signs. They want to see more miracles. They want more really nice and convenient things to happen to make their lives better in this world. And then when he actually speaks, instead of just performing signs... What do they do? How do they respond? They don't like the things that he says. They don't like to hear that he's the son of God, that he's equal with God. They don't like to hear that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. When he talks about himself being the Messiah, the Savior, they reject him. They call him crazy or demon-possessed, and they try to kill him. So the first problem Jesus seems to be calling out is an overemphasis on signs. All you want is the sign and not true faith in me. And that is therefore the second problem, the problem of faith. So faith, different objects, different effects. Our faith and the value of it and the effect, what it accomplishes, depends on what we believe in. John is calling people, this evangelist is calling the world to believe in Jesus. See who Jesus truly is and believe in him. But some people believe in him, a version of him, a caricature of who Christ is. And the difference between knowing Christ and not knowing Christ is life and death. John said, remember in chapter 1, Jesus came into the world and he came to his own people, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. His people, these Galileans included, the, the Bible says they welcomed him, but yet they did not receive him. They believed in him, but they didn't know him. They thought they knew him, but the person they determined him to be was someone other than who Jesus actually was to them. Jesus was simply useful. Jesus, therefore, we see, is treated as a useful phenomenon. A fatal attraction. That's what these people had to Jesus. A fatal attraction. You probably heard that phrase in reference to someone who becomes so obsessed with a, with a love interest or some risky activity that ultimately it ends in their demise. Well, This is exactly what's going to happen to these people who are attracted to Christ for the wrong reasons. The Galileans had seen miracles. tells us they'd seen what he did in Jerusalem. 
Many miracles which John doesn't record for us, but we see them in the other Gospels. They've most likely heard of the water to wine incident that happened here in Cana. And for this reason alone is why they're welcoming him. This is why they want him among them. Come, bring your miracle working power and help us. Make our lives better. Heal our sicknesses. This is why they want Jesus. And this is the only Jesus they know. Masses of people coming to Jesus throughout the course of his ministry uh, for all the wrong reasons was a very common occurrence. And it's a major theme in John and throughout the Gospels. But it was precisely this kind of attention for the wrong reasons that Jesus was trying to avoid. He didn't want that attention. They saw him as someone useful for making improvements to their present situations, but no more than that. Here are some examples. First of all, we remember the woman at the well. We have what I'll call the life hack. Have you heard that phrase? The life hack. This is something that you can do. To make your life easier, more efficient, more convenient. This is what the woman at the well first saw Jesus as in John 4.15. Sir, give me this water. I want to drink this water so that I will never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come to this well and labor to bring water back to my household every day. I don't like doing that work. It's hard. It's hot. Give me this water. Or perhaps the magic tablecloth. This comes from a story in a book that I used to read when I was a kid. I don't even remember the name of the book. But a man comes across a a tablecloth that when you set it out on the table, all this delicious food appears, the best meal you could imagine. And then you fold it back up and everything's gone. There's no mess to clean up. That sounds pretty amazing, right? So the magic tablecloth we see in John 6, this is what Jesus has to offer these people in their mind. Look at verse 2. A large crowd was following him because, why? They saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. If you're not there, please turn to John 6. We're going to spend a little bit of time here following this progression. So you have a large crowd following Jesus and they're with him. They want to be with him and we'll see why in just a minute. They saw the signs, therefore they're following him. They want to see more signs. And then skip ahead to 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, remember he fed 5,000. He has five loaves of bread and two fish, and he multiplies them miraculously to feed the people. And when they saw this sign, they said, Oh, this is indeed the prophet. This is the one who has come into the world. Well, that sounds good, right? That sounds like they have kind of an understanding of who he is. Well, let's continue on. Perceiving, verse 15, then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him their king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Skip ahead to verse 22. On the next day, that crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, Jesus had crossed over to the other side, saw that There had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. 
When they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, why did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs and then rightly perceived them and believed in me, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What they want from Jesus, this crowd of people, is just another meal. They're hungry, and it's very convenient for them to have Jesus miraculously provide food for them that they don't have to pay for. And it's also very entertaining, right? And so that's what they're after. Skip ahead then to verse 31. They say, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say, Sir, give us this bread always. But they still don't understand. Because as this story progresses, and he moves on to explain more about what he means by the bread that he's going to give them. He says, the bread that I'm going to give you is my flesh. Essentially, they don't understand this, but he's saying, I'm going to die for you. And you must participate in me by eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Well, they don't like to hear that. They start grumbling. That doesn't sound very good. That's not like the meal that they just got from him. They're not interested anymore. And the crowd's... Leave him. Skip ahead to verse 60. Many of his disciples heard it. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Then would you believe? And The answer to the rhetorical question is no, because it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so ultimately what we see behind all of this is we consider the signs of Christ that show he is the true son of God. And we see the response of the people with true faith, authentic faith, and many who just believe in him for what he can offer them. Temporally, we see that behind all that, true faith is only possible by the work of the Spirit. Remember the life from above that Jesus told Nicodemus about? You must be born again. You must be born from above so that you have eyes to see and ears to hear and you can believe in me for who I am. So the kind of reception that we just saw in John 6, the crowds not liking what he says, they're only there for the signs and the benefit that they get from him. Once he tells them who he is and what he's about to do, they don't want him anymore. They leave. And this is the kind of reception Jesus knew he would have among the majority of his people, the majority of the Jews. To them, Jesus was simply an entertainer. He was a successful medical doctor. He was someone who could make life more convenient and comfortable. He was a socio-political deliverer, a philanthropist. He was useful, like Tupperware or modern medicine. But 
They believed in him to some extent, right? Were they somewhere on the spectrum of faith? They expressed some kind of belief. Well, there are two examples that I want us to look at that show us that their faith was not what it seemed to be. First of all, back in John 2, you can turn there if you'd like. John 2, 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. That sounds good. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he knew, or he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. And so what Jesus sees in these people, even though on the surface it looks really good, they, they believe in his name because of the wonderful things he's doing. However, Jesus knows that they don't truly know him. The faith that they're exhibiting, this belief, is a spurious, superficial faith, and it will fail them once they see who he is and what he's truly about. And then in John chapter 7, we see Jesus' own brothers exhibiting the same problem. Some measure of belief in Jesus, but it's not the Jesus who is the Messiah. John 7, starting in verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea. They have this wonderful idea. Look at their, look at their proposition. Leave here and go down to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It's a great idea. How could it possibly go wrong, even though the verse before that says that the Jews were seeking to kill him? Okay, and so then it says, look at that, look at this in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now that's curious. They know and they, they, are, they are spurring him on to do more miracles. They know he can accomplish these things. It's not a question of the credibility of the power at work through Jesus. They're not, they're not questioning his miracles. In fact, the Jewish leaders didn't either. They only got upset that he would heal somebody on the Sabbath. They weren't like, oh, you didn't really heal that person. That's not real. There's been no credible attempt to discredit the miracles of Jesus. But they weren't questioning his miracles. Even Nicodemus exclaimed when he comes to Jesus, we know you are from God because no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. But the vast majority, Jesus' own brothers included, they didn't see him as the son of God. They saw him as just the son of Mary and Joseph. We know who you are. We, know, we saw you grow up. We're your own brothers. You couldn't possibly be God or the Messiah. They didn't see him as a Messiah, just a miracle worker. He was convenient. He was entertaining. He was useful. See that quote from Piper there. Unbelievers don't love God. They just use God. They want the things that God can offer them to make their lives better. Sometimes even the idea of getting out of hell, escaping his punishment. But they really don't want God. 
So they had what we could call a faith. I don't really like using that term because it's not biblical faith as we see it, as we see commanded. But they had a form of belief. The problem is the object of their belief, who they believed in, was insufficient. The object of their faith was not Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. It was Jesus, a man from Nazareth, who had supernatural abilities. All they really wanted were his signs and wonders. But signs and wonders will never save anybody. Because signs and wonders were not the power of God for salvation. Only the gospel in Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. Only faith in him saves. They didn't know him for who he was. So the result, of course, is, as we saw in chapter 3, to not believe in Christ is to perish, is to be condemned. So that's one option, to see Jesus as a useful phenomenon in my life, someone who can improve my situation. Or we could see Jesus as he's presented, the glorious Savior. The alternative to faith in a misidentified, insufficient Savior is to know the true Savior and to believe in Him for salvation. Not salvation from poverty or sickness or the inconveniences and sufferings of this life, but ultimately from sin. These people weren't asking Jesus to save them from their sin that separated them from their God. They just wanted another meal. They wanted healing from a sickness, they wanted convenience. So now the official, as we come back to our text here in chapter 4, this man uh, who began as an example of the group as a whole who only wanted Jesus for his miracle working abilities, now he becomes an exception to the norm, an example of true faith. So look with me at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And we see that he finds out when this healing began to take place. It was at the exact moment when Jesus said, Your son will live. And again, the Bible says he believed. And we, we have this, this repetition of the word believe, and I think something really significant is going on here with this man. First of all, when, when, when he comes to Jesus and says, my son is dying, please come down and heal him. And Jesus rebukes him and said, you will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. He doesn't respond in shock or, or take offense. He doesn't recoil and say, how what, what are you talking about? Or how dare you rebuke me? My son is dying. Don't you get it? This is my urgent need. But I think Jesus is testing the man's faith. Because what does the man ask him to do? He says, come with me. I know that you can heal. And I need you to be with my son and do whatever it is you do to make him better before he dies. He doesn't seem to know that Jesus is the Lord of resurrection. 
that he can bring people back from the dead, and that is his ministry. So he says, come with me or my son will die. But Jesus doesn't go with him. Jesus simply says, no, I'm not going to go with you. You go. Go and your son will live. How does he respond? And I think what we see here in the response of the official uh, is a a transition point. There's a growth of something substantive here, some real meaningful faith. He says, instead of now seeing a sign accomplished, which is what he came for, he has to go and simply believe the word of Christ without seeing the sign. But he does that. He believes the word and goes on his way. Think of Thomas at this point when Thomas and the disciples are fearful, they're depressed, they're hiding. Jesus has been crucified. And now some of the disciples have seen him. He's resurrected. But Thomas says, I will not believe until I see a sign, until I see and touch the scars for myself. When Jesus comes graciously and shows him that he is truly alive, he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas wanted a sign and he had to see it before he would believe. This man now wanted a sign but doesn't get to see it accomplished, yet he still believes. So I think there's something commendable here about a faith, a true faith that is growing. We know that that is the nature of faith, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that we can't see. And that marks all of our life, by the way, as we walk by faith, not by sight. And this man starts to express that kind of faith. Now, just to draw your attention quickly, Jesus, as God, as divine, he's not bound by spatial limitations or any kind of natural laws that govern our universe. He transcends those laws because he created those laws and he reigns over them. And so he doesn't have to be in the place where this boy is dying to heal him. It wouldn't have mattered if the boy was 15 miles away as he was or 15,000 miles away. Jesus was able to heal him instantly, completely, remotely, without lifting a finger. Now, this man, this official, sees the result of Jesus' miracle, this next sign that he performs. And the Bible says, again, he believed, and not only him, but his whole household, in verse 53. So now he's trusted the word of Christ and he's found out that it's been proven to be true through the healing of his son and his faith increases again and spills over to his family. Now, it's not explicit in the text. As we wonder, you know, don't we always want to ask the question like, what's going on here? Is this person really, truly believing in Christ? Are they a true convert or is something else happening? And although it's not explicit in the text, I think we're led to this conclusion by the progressive increase of the man's faith as he encounters Jesus. He believed the words of Jesus without seeing the sign accomplished. 
And then he was enlightened, I believe, to see the identity of Christ for who he was, the long-awaited Messiah. The one with the power to bring his boy back to life is the one who also raises the spiritually dead to life and saves sinners from eternal condemnation. He believed the word of Christ, and this is true faith. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, after all, Romans 10. And so real, lasting, saving faith depends on hearing who Christ truly is. Because what is the message of Christ? Repent and believe. I am the Messiah who's come from God. I am the only solution to your sin. And you must believe in me or perish. Where else could we go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. And knowing who Christ truly is, the object of our faith, as he is, is essential. Because to believe in any other type of God or Savior that we could come across or conjure up is to perish. There is only one Savior. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You must confess the Lord Jesus. You must not simply confess some miracle worker. You must not simply confess some prophet, some provider of humanitarian aid. You must confess the Lord Jesus the Lord of the universe who humbled himself, took on flesh, became like us so that he could die to deliver us from slavery to sin and death. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that my people, that my disciples know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you have sent. And so true faith, faith that truly saves and persists to the end, because Jesus said, only the one who endures to the end will be saved. This faith depends on knowing and believing in the true God and his son, who is the one and only savior for the world. He is the only object of faith that's sufficient for salvation. And so I just want to leave you simply with this question as we've considered this life from above that only comes through Christ, who is the savior for anyone in the world who will believe. Who is Jesus to you? Be sure that you don't dishonor Christ like the Jews who thought they knew him, but they only knew a version of Jesus that wasn't truly the Son of God. They believed in a greatly diminished, powerless, ultimately to save version of Christ, and he wasn't sufficient the version they believed in, to save them. So don't just see him as a useful object in your life for for the betterment of your circumstances. See his glory and his worth as a person. Who he is as a person, not just his works. He is God himself. And you owe your praise and your time and your, all your efforts, all your priority to him. 
See his mission to seek and save the lost from sin and eternal death. Believe in the real Jesus, the real Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. And in believing, enjoy the full, abundant, eternal life that he gives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We see the revelation of your goodness and your kindness and your mercy not only in the words of Scripture, but through the living Word, who is Christ. The radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your nature. He is equal with you. He was made lowly to become one of us, to, to put on a body, to live in our world of brokenness and shame and suffering and to put on human limitations to die a death that we deserve, to live the righteous life that pleases you that we could never live, and to overcome death and hell, to raise from the dead victorious, and to give us his righteousness, and to give us forgiveness, and to give us his victory. This is why he came. This is who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the one and only Savior of the world. So, Father, I pray that you would purify our faith. Give us eyes to see this Christ for who he truly is in all his glory. That we would believe in him and have life. In Jesus' name.